Life down here is a lot. From every angle, corner, and edge. Sometimes it's just too much, too complex. It can be easy to miss how he's at work all around us, moving throughout the patterns and forms of this world. But when we seek and find with all our heart, we discover that it all comes down to the same fundamental designs. And then we can rest in the revelation of empty space. Clarity comes when we humbly clear away the mess and devote ourselves to a deeper connection. Setting our minds to gain understanding. To see the beauty in simplicity. As he helps us see that less is more. Hey, Cornwall Church, good to have you with us no matter where you're joining us from, either on one of our campuses in Bellingham or Skagit Valley or around the state and the country, uh, the world even. So glad you're with us. We are in a season right now where we have three weeks that we're looking at as a, a topic called fasting, and we're also in a season where we are experiencing that and practicing that for 21 days, uh, those three weeks as well. And I just want to say we're right in the middle of that, about two-thirds of the way through that. I want to thank many of you who joined me last Thursday on January 21st, the 21st day of the 21st year of the 21st century, to pray for our president, for our leaders, for our country, you know, for, for our governor, for the legislature, for the uh, Senate, for the, the, uh, just everybody in, in leadership as we're called to do. And I want to encourage you to continue on with that. Um, I was encouraged to hear how many of you joined in with us on that. And it just encourages me because we as a church, I think, are growing in our understanding of this discipline, of, of our practice with this discipline. And that's a good thing. And for some of you, this is brand new. And I just want to encourage you. In fact, I want to give you a little tip, uh, something that's helped me out. Because when I'm fasting, especially when I'm fasting from food, whether it's a meal or a couple meals or a day or, or what have you, I find that my stomach reminds me that I'm fasting. It, it begins to grumble. It begins to groan a bit. And I use those words because it acts a little bit like a spoiled child. It says, hey, hey, don't forget about us. We're, we're starving down here. And it's real easy to kind of just jump right in and, and, you know, commiserate with the stomach. Say, yeah, we are starving. Boy, this is rough. What I've learned to do is anytime my stomach grumbles, I take that as a reminder. I say, oh, yeah, stomach, thank you for reminding me, not of what I'm not having, but of why I'm even doing this. And so when my stomach grumbles, it actually, it's a tool that I can leverage to say, oh, that's right, and refocus my attention on God, send up a prayer, think about a verse I'm memorizing, or, or just to be able to kind of come back in on this. One other thing that I've taken it even to the next level in my life is that when my stomach grumbles and growls and says we're really hungry, I say this prayer. God, I want to hunger for you the way I hunger for food. Because I don't know about you, but after I've missed a meal or two or, or more, um, I'm missing food bad. And I'm hungering for food bad. And as I get close to whatever time uh, allotment that I've said, this is when I'm going to fast. As I get close to the end of that, I start thinking about when I can eat and when can it be. And I start counting down the hours and I start counting down the minutes and I start thinking about what am I going to have and how's it going to taste and what's it going to be like. And I, and I just have this prayer, God, I want to hunger for you 
the way that I hunger for food. I, I want that to be when, when there's any time where I'm, I'm not connected with you, that, I, that I just like, I'm missing something. I start counting the days and the months or the weeks or, or the hours or the minutes down until I can meet with you again. <clears throat> the psalmist used that kind of a picture. He, he uses the analogy of thirsting, but we could swap out the word hunger. In Psalm 42, verse 2, he says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? We could say, my soul hungers for God, for the living God. And there's this, this desire, when, when can I go and meet with the living God? So I want to just encourage you as we enter into this, the third and final week of our 21 days of prayer and fasting. Um, for some of you, you might need to readjust some of your plan. For some of you, you might say, you know what? I don't know that I've really sacrificed that much. You might want to increase it, w whatever. Let the Spirit lead you on that. I do want to say this, that our plan is that a season of prayer and fasting will be a part of our annual rhythm, our annual calendar here at Cornwall Church. Uh, our plan is, unless God were to, to make it clear that this wouldn't be wise, that pretty much every March or April, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's called Easter. Pretty much every December, we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. It's called Christmas. And pretty much every January, we are going to enter into, to start a new year, a season of prayer and fasting. So as we conclude this series and jump into our last week of prayer and fasting, I want to just encourage you to stay the course and finish strong and continue your focus on Jesus Christ. There's nothing that diminishes my confidence in the competence of humanity faster than driving through a roundabout. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And there's been some experiences that I've had, three in particular, three different roundabouts, three different drivers, all within about the last week and a half. I was following a, a, another car, and, and I won't even talk about um, gender of driver or license plate or anything. I was following a car into a roundabout. It was not at night, it was not rainy, it was a clear day, and it was clear on that day that there were no cars approaching the roundabout from in front of us or from either side. The roundabout was completely clear, so were the roads. And as we were getting ready to go into this roundabout, the person in front of me, this individual I was following, came to a complete and full stop before entering the roundabout. And I wanted to say, the sign says, yield, not stop. I mean, this is dangerous. I, I could have slammed right into the back of this individual. I did not. But it's like, whoa, whoa. I looked at them, it's like they're completely stopped, and then they kind of ease their way into the roundabout. Very dangerous situation. Another one at a different roundabout, a very full roundabout, a lot of people coming and going, was an individual that had made their way into the roundabout, which at that point, you have the right of way. But in seeing all these cars lined up, this person stopped in the roundabout to let people get into the roundabout. That is not the place you stop. Once you're in the roundabout, you keep going and then get off whatever exit you need to on that. The third one, a different roundabout, this one I will say was at night and it was rainy, so I'll give a little bit of grace. But my wife and my daughter and I were in our car going through and we were in the roundabout, which means we have the right of way. And a car came screaming into the roundabout, just assuming that they had the right of way and almost T-boned us. I had to swerve to miss them and, and they just kind of came right in. 
In all of those things, there's these, these people that are doing this, and I just thought what I would like to do is go to these roundabouts and just stand with this sign for people to see, hey, you're doing it wrong. You, you're doing it wrong. Don't you know how this works? You're doing it wrong, and when you do it wrong, it's really dangerous, and someone's going to get hurt out here. Now, that's very cathartic for me. I appreciate you being my support group, but I'm not just telling you about roundabouts. What we're talking about, fasting, can be very dangerous if we do it wrong. And I'm talking dangerous, not like physically dangerous. I'm talking dangerous, like spiritually dangerous. And I know because I've done it wrong a lot. There have been many times when I have fasted with wrong motives, that it's out of pride or comparison or to be seen. There have been times when I fasted out of a legalistic uh, attitude that I just, and it was all about what I had to give up, not about filling up. There were times I fasted with this attitude that somehow God would owe me, that this would leverage his power on my behalf. And when we do it wrong, it becomes dangerous spiritually. In Isaiah 58, verse 6, God says these words, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? And we're going to look at this in a, in a minute here out of Isaiah 58. But God says, let me tell you how to do this right. Let me tell you the kind of fasting I want for you. And one thing I want us to be clear as we continue to grow in our understanding and our practice of this is that fasting is not an end to itself. We don't fast just for fasting's sake. We don't fast just to check off another spiritual discipline off the list that we've experienced or that we need to do once a year or whatever. We don't fast just to kind of build character. We don't fast to somehow get extra credit with God, earn his approval, somehow twist his arm. Fasting is not an end to itself. Now, I will say that there is value, secondary values in fasting. I mean, there's great value in self-discipline and self-denial. There's great, great value in delayed gratification. We know almost nothing of that in the United States. Great value in these disciplines. Uh, great de value in, in, in denying ourselves. That's it. There's even medical value for intermittent fasting and such. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about biblical fasting. And what I want us to do is to see when God says, this is the kind of fast I've chosen, what kind of fast has he chosen? What is it that is not just fasting to go through the motions, but really is what God had in mind. We're going to look at that in Isaiah 58. You can turn there if you have your Bible. Before we get there, though, I do want to take us into the life of Jesus. If you've been with us, you know two weeks ago, we looked at what Jesus had to say, the corrective teaching about fasting, what he did with his disciples and what he said to us about fasting. Last weekend, we looked at his relative, John the Baptist, and how he had fasted from some things for his entire life, and, and then even more so. Well, these two stories come together when John is baptizing down at the Jordan River, and Jesus, his cousin, comes to be baptized by him. Remember this scene. John hasn't had a haircut, hasn't shaved for 30 years, his entire life. Here's this man with all this hair. People are lining up to be baptized. Jesus goes to get baptized. And when Jesus comes up out of the Jordan River, he hears the voice of his heavenly father. This is my son with whom I, uh, who I love, with whom I am well pleased. And the scripture says that the spirit descended on him like a dove. 
you know, there's a lot of things in the Bible I wish I could see. That moment, I would have loved to have been there. What, what a profound moment. As Jesus is baptized, the Son is there, the Heavenly Father says, it's my Son, and the Holy Spirit descends on him. Right on the heels of that, these are connected, I believe. Right on the heels of that, we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing, fasting, during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So this is the, the example that we see of Jesus fasting and fasting for 40 days. What I find interesting is that the very first temptation that the enemy brings against him is the temptation to break his fast. The devil did not want Jesus to fast. And I would say if the devil didn't want Jesus to fast, he probably doesn't want us to either. And you know that phrase, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak and the devil's trying to get him to go with the flesh, not the spirit. Trying to get him to go with, with his will, not the father's will. But Jesus endures. And 40 days later, it says this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, I highlighted something that Jesus, after he's been baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. He's full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, and comes back in the power of the Spirit. So this, this fasting experience that Jesus had was very spiritful. It was a very spiritual experience. But you begin to ask, I do anyway, Why? Why, why 40 days? Why would Jesus need this? He is God after all, and, 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 and he's sinless, and why would he need to go fast? I mean, like, what is the purpose of, the, 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 of spiritual fasting? The spiritual fasting for a purpose, for a purpose. And I mentioned this, I think, in the first week, that throughout Scripture, there are a lot of different reasons why people would fast. Usually, most often, it was about repentance, preparing themselves, going before the Lord, and in, in, in getting things right. There were also times when they would fast for, for strength or for power. There would be times when they'd fast for a breakthrough, times when they'd fast for guidance and wisdom. Why would Jesus go for a 40-day fast? It's not because of repentance, obviously. He's without sin. Um, guidance, maybe. Breakthrough, maybe. Presence of God, may, maybe. I wonder if the purpose of his fast was preparation for a greater impact. Hold on, don't, don't judge me yet. Preparation for a greater impact. Because he fasts, and it's right at the beginning of his ministry. He's baptized, kind of launched off in his ministry. He goes to fast, and then he's going to start his ministry right after that. Well, the next thing, and, and this is what, what was, I find interesting. I've heard the story of Jesus' baptism a lot. I've heard the story of Jesus in his temptation a lot. I've heard the story of Jesus going back to his hometown a lot. But I never connected them all together because they just happened back to back to back. So Jesus is baptized. He goes and he's fasting. And then the next thing that's recorded after he comes back full of the, of the power of the Holy Spirit says this. He went to Nazareth, his hometown where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah uh, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. He found. Like this wasn't just a random, uh, I'm going to read there. 
He went looking specific. It was very deliberate. It was very intentional. He knew what he was looking for. And he goes to what we would have in our Bibles as Isaiah chapter 61. And I think it's really significant that we see what he read as he deliberately goes to Isaiah chapter 61. This is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He reads that, rolls it back up, hands it to the attendant, and then he sits down. All the eyes are on him. And he makes this statement. Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. People are amazed. Later, some would be very, very angry at this statement because what he's saying is, I am the fulfillment of the prophecies from Isaiah. They knew the prophecies of, of Isaiah. They knew it was about the Messiah, and he's saying that. But for our purposes, what I want us to see is he reads this out of Isaiah 61, and he basically says, this is what my ministry is. This is why I came. This is what I've called to. This is the kingdom of God. This is bringing about the shalom of God, the, the way God would have life to be for everybody. He's bringing this. It, it's, he says, I've come to, re, to restore, to redeem, to rebuild, to, to bring the kingdom of God. And what if, what if the reason Jesus was led by the Spirit to fast for 40 days was not just so that he would feel good about a spiritual discipline? And what if, follow me on this, what if it wasn't only about being close to God for 40 days? And what if it wasn't about being just disciplined? What if it was about being prepared for greater impact to bring the kingdom of God? And, 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 if that were the case, what if the 21 days of fasting that we're in is not just so that we can feel good about ourselves having done a spiritual discipline, and it's not just about us growing closer to God, but it's so that we, as individuals and as a church, would have a greater kingdom impact. That after the 21 days, it's not over. That's when it starts. Well, that takes us to Isaiah 58 that I want us to look at today. And I'll just say right up front, I don't have time to do justice to Isaiah 58. In fact, I want to encourage you this week, as we do our final week in the, in the prayer and fasting, spend time in Isaiah 58. We're gonna, we're gonna look at it. Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament, and he, uh, he speaks the words of God. Isaiah 58, verse 1, starts off this way. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. So it's really clear. This one, he says, I, I, I'm not going to whisper these things. I want to make sure you hear them. I'm going to make sure it's proclaimed very loudly. No one's going to say, well, I didn't hear that. I, I missed that. And he says, you're going to shout this now. You're going to use your outside voice. Use your warehouse voice. This is going to be a big one. This one's really important. And then he talks about Israel. Verse 2, he says this about Israel. For day after day, they seek me out. That, that's fantastic. They seem eager to know my ways. Man, wonderful. As if they were a nation that does what is right, yes, and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Wow, what, what a commendation. He's like, 
they're seeking God, and it's not just on Christmas and Easter, and it's not just on the Sabbath. I mean, day after day, they're seeking God. And they're eager, they're, they're hungry. They have a desire to, to know the ways of God and to know his will. And, and they've like kept his word, his commands, the law. On top of that, they invite him to be a part of their decisions and they want just decisions and they want him to be near. I mean, what's not to like about that? Honestly, that's what I want for you and me. I want us to seek God every single day. I want us to be eager and hungry for his ways. I want us to be you know, true to his commands and his word. I want us to invite him into all of our decisions and I want to be near to him. That must be great. Circle back to verse one. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. No wonder he's shouting it because they're doing so great. This is amazing. He wants to let everybody, give them praise, give them accolades. What they are doing is phenomenal. But that's not what it says in the second half of verse one. He says, shout this out. Raise this like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. Wait, 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 wait. This is kind of confusing because he's getting ready in verse two to say, seeking me every single day. They're hungry to know my ways. They're keeping my commands. They're having uh, my, my just decisions and they want my presence. And yet you're calling us rebellious? I, I, don't, I don't get it. In fact, it's almost as if the people say, and there's even more. <laughs> like, it's not just that we're seeking God all the time and wanting his ways and his, his commands. There's even more. Verse three, they say, why have we fasted? I mean, we fast, you know, the day of atonement. Every, every year, the day of atonement was a day set aside for fasting. And so we do that. And there were other seasons throughout Israel's history where they were called to fast and they would do that. Why, why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed like, God, we're following your commands. We're fasting. You, you told us to, and you don't even see it. And, and humbling ourselves, this is what I find interesting. A half a chapter earlier in Isaiah 57, verse 15, Isaiah writes about God, the high and lofty one. He lives in the high and holy place, but he also lives close to those who are humble and contrite. He says, listen, you just said, you know, humble, that's God's presence, and, and we humble ourselves, and, and this fasting. You know, what, why won't you even notice it? Why won't you even hear it? And I think God says, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Yeah, you're doing a bunch of religious activity, but you're doing it wrong. It's not what you're doing, but why you're doing it and how you're doing it. It's not just what you're doing because you are fasting and you're fasting at the right times and you're giving up food and you're, you're fasting. It's not just what you're doing. It's to what end are you doing it? Is fasting just an end in and of itself? To what end? Push pause there for a second. This reminds me of something Jesus says to the religious leaders years later. All right, in Matthew 23, Jesus says some of his harshest words to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, guys like me. He says to them, you, know, you, you hypocrites. 
He says, you go through all the right religious motions, but there's something missing. And he calls them whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside. You're going through all the right activities. You're doing all the right stuff. But inside, you're filled with dead men's bones and everything unclean. And then he draws a picture like a cup that, or, or a bowl or a dish that, that you spend a lot of time cleaning the outside. But inside, it's filled with moldy leftovers and stuff. He says, you know, clean the inside of the bowl and the dish. And Jesus says, you're going through all the right motions, but you're just doing it wrong. So as, I, as God speaks through Isaiah, he says, let me tell you why you're doing this wrong. Verse 3, again, says this. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? So listen. The fasting, the Day of Atonement, that was set apart. That was a consecrated convocation. It was a holy day set apart for a gathering. They weren't to work. They weren't to eat. They were to repent because their sins were going to be taken away on the Day of Atonement. This was a very holy day. And he says, listen, this is a sacred day and you do it. It's beach day for you. You're, you're off doing whatever you want. You, you know, you've missed the point. Yes, you're not eating, but you're just doing whatever you want. Uh, my daughter um, got a job, and uh, she was telling me about, you know, one of the things that, that this job allows is that they give us time to do voluntary work in the community. Any kind of nonprofit charity we want, we, we can do it, and, and they pay, pay our salary and, and stuff. I said, so you're getting paid to do volunteer work? She says, yeah. I said, well, then it's not really volunteer work. But regardless... If she took a day of volunteer service, but then went to the mountain and went snowboarding, she's missing the point completely. It's to go and serve. And he's saying, listen, this is a day of fasting. You're taking it as a, as a day off, as a play day, as a snow day, as a beach day. And not, not only that, you're not supposed to work, but you exploit your workers. You make others work. You say, well, I'm not working, but you make them work. And on top of that, do you see what happens here? You end up quarreling and striking uh, each other, and you end up hitting each other with wicked fists. <laughs> Let me just say this. In our 21 days of prayer and fasting, that's not the goal. We don't want you to end up hitting somebody. And so God says, you think I'm going to hear that? You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Is that what I had in mind? So he says this, is that the kind of fast I have chosen? And then at the end of verse 5, he says, is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? You thought that's what I was talking about? To just not eat and then do whatever you want? You think that's acceptable to me? You think I'm pleased with that? You think I'm going to honor that? You think I'm going to hear your prayers? You think I'm going to bless that? And maybe one of the points that we need to understand on this is this, is that fasting for you and I, fasting that leaves us unchanged is unacceptable. That it's not just having a nice religious experience for a meal or a day or a week or three weeks. If it doesn't change us, if we just continue on just as we've always been, if we're not transformed in any way, it's unacceptable to God. 
He says, you're doing it wrong. Well, the great thing is that God says, so let me show you. Verse 6, let me show you. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? And now he's going to say, this is what I had in mind. This is what I want from you. And what's really interesting, I want you to take note of this, is the striking similarity between what Jesus said after his fasting and what Isaiah records about fasting. There's a, that's why I told you this, the, the part about Jesus up front, because it's a striking similarity. Now, again, Jesus would have been very, very familiar with Isaiah. Obviously, he turned straight to Isaiah 61. He would have been familiar with Isaiah 58 as well. But God says to them, is this not the kind of fasting that I've chosen? Let, let me tell you the kind that I have chosen. He says this, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not turn away your own flesh and blood? God says that. That's what I'm talking about. And when I think about this, and I think about what Jesus said, We see that when he's quoting Isaiah 61, it's got a lot of resemblance and similarities with Isaiah 58. And he's saying, I'm talking about the kingdom of God. I'm talking about that shalom. I'm talking about life the way God ordained it to be for everybody, not just for you, not just for Israel, not just for the church, for the world. That that is what I want to see happen in the fasting. Now, listen. This is so important to God throughout the Old Testament. This is so important to Jesus when he says, this is my ministry. This is what it's going to look like. This is what I'm calling my people to. This is what it means to bring the kingdom of God to bear in our world today, to bring about God's shalom, this, 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 to set things right again. You know, if, if God held up the you're doing it wrong sign, um, he, he's good about saying, but let me show you how to do it right. Early on in Isaiah chapter 1, he talks about how, you know, they pray, but their prayers aren't heard. They, they extend their hands, but it's not acceptable. And, uh, and then he says this in Isaiah chapter 1. He says, stop doing wrong. <laughs> stop. Just stop. Learn to do right. And look what he says. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Now, these aren't just standalone instances. You see this all the way through. You see it in Psalms. You see it in the, in the prophets. You, you see it uh, in the law. You, you see it um, in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 14 says this. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. That would be God. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. How about Proverbs 19? He who is kind to the poor Lends to the poor? No. Lends to the Lord. And he will reward him for what he has done. So over and over again, you see that God identifies with the poor and the oppressed and the needy. He is the father to the fatherless. He is the husband to the widow. He is the one who welcomes in the stranger and the outcast. 
that God identifies with the poor over and over again, and he wants us as his followers. He wanted Israel as his chosen people to have that same heart and to live that same lifestyle. You remember when God called Abram and he says, you're gonna be blessed, but it's not just that you just kind of grow up saying, wow, look how blessed I am. He said, I'm gonna bless you in order to be a blessing. You know, we sing that song, The Blessing. You know, Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you to you and your children and their children and their children and their children and their children. children. Okay, you know the song. God blesses us, but it's not just so we can hold on to it. It's so that we can be a blessing. That's why in Micah chapter six, another uh, another, um, prophet, Micah, through the prophet Micah, God says, Here's what I require you. This, this is what pleases me. This is what I require of you. To do justly, to love mercy, and just to walk humbly with your God. All right. Let's go back to verse 7 of this Isaiah 58. And I, I want you to see something. So Isaiah said, this is, is, this not, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? Is it not to share your food with the hungry... And to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. And when you see the naked, to clothe him and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Hungry, wanderer, naked. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story about sheep and goats. And he separates the sheep and the goats. And to the sheep, he says... You saw me hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I had no clothing, but you gave me clothes. When Jesus is talking about the separation of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, it looks real similar to Isaiah 58, 7. And they respond, well, Jesus, we, we, we don't know what you're talking about. We, we never saw you hungry. We, we never knew you were, a, you know, a, a stranger. We didn't see you without clothes or any of that. He says, no, no, no. When you've done it to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it to me. You want to know what kind of fasting God chooses? You want to know what's most important, most important to him? It's when self-denial leads to loving service. It's when we say no in order to say yes in order to bless. That fasting is emptying out so that we can fill up and then pour forth. And so many times we make it all about emptying and nothing else. Emptying ourselves so we can fill up with more of God so that we can pour out and be a blessing to others. It's not just feeling good. It's doing good. There was a pastor years ago, a large church in Seattle. Um, he actually passed away, but, but I heard him talk one time at a pastor's conference. And, and when you get a bunch of pastors together, they, they kind of actually can poke fun at you, uh, congregations. But he made this comment that I'll never forget talking about people in his church, the ones that were the most trouble. And he, he had this little, this little um, 
I don't know what you call it, limerick, uh, not a limerick, uh, it doesn't matter, I'll just tell you what he said. Talking about Christians in the church, he said, if the input exceeds the output, the upkeep is the downfall. If all we're doing is taking in, bless me, bless me, give me more sermons, feed me, feed me, I want that, and we're not giving out, we become the high-maintenance, troubled Christians. If the input exceeds the output, the upkeep is the downfall. And he's saying, listen, you've been blessed in order to be a blessing. This is what it looks like, self-denial that turns in to loving service, of helping others, of bringing about the kingdom of God. There is a danger with this, though. There is a danger because you can read uh, Isaiah 58 and you can just be like, oh, burdened. Oh, one more thing I've got to do. Drudgery, got to do this. Guilt, guilt. Man, guilt's a great motivator on the short term, but not for long term. All this guilt, it's a danger there. And I think the answer is this. I, I, I love this. I heard this. Uh, Timothy Keller was, was talking about a woman who's a Harvard professor uh, who wrote a book. Her name was... Um, Elaine Scarry, she's a Harvard professor. He was referencing her book. I have not read the book. But he was talking about this whole thing, and he says, we can either do this dutifully or beautifully. This can all be dutiful or beautiful. And there's a vast difference between the two. If we do this, bring justice, the kingdom of God, the shalom, out of duty, it's, I have to. But how much better when it's out of beauty? I want to. If it's duty, really, it's usually self-motivated. Either I'm going to assuage my own guilt, or I'm going to look better, or I'm going to do this, and it really is about me. If it's beauty, it has nothing to do with me. It's about others. If it's duty, I'm going to try to find the bare minimum that I can get away with. Okay, what have I had to do? Is that it? Okay, I, got, I did it. Done. Out of beauty, it's lavish. It's generous. It's even scandalous. If it's duty, it's usually a grudging, guilt-ridden activity. But the beauty is a grateful act of grace. And we get to choose. Is it going to be dutiful or beautiful? We decide. Now, some of you right now are saying, I want it to be beautiful, but I'm just honest with myself. It is a duty to me. It is a drudgery to me. Well, this is how we can move towards the beauty side of things. It's to remember how beautiful Jesus has been to us. And when you begin to understand what he's done for you and I, then in response to that, there's nothing else but hum humble gratitude and saying, can I, can I pass this on? Jesus, with all of eternity, all of the cosmos at his fingertips, he became poor so that we might become rich. Jesus, the uncreated one, the one who's been forever, becomes a son of man so that we could be called children of God. Jesus, who never ever sinned, never sinned, became sin so that we could become righteousness. He became my sin 
so that I could become his righteousness. Jesus, who for all of eternity lived in loving harmony with the Father, took on the wrath of God so that I could experience the grace of God. And Jesus died a death he didn't deserve so that I could be brought to life that I don't deserve. And when you immerse yourself in that truth over and over again, it does something here. And it takes us out of the duty into the beauty. Okay, Isaiah ends this section with kind of this if-then. Like, you're doing it wrong. This is what it looks like to do it right. Now, if you'll do that, then this. We see this, and he says this. If you do away with the yokes of oppression, with the pointing fingers and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, if you'll do what I'm telling you to do, if you'll bring the kingdom of God to bear, if you'll bring the shalom, if you'll be a part of this, then, he says, then, and, and, and just look at it in, in the text on your own. He just gives all of these, what God's gonna do. Starting in verse eight, if you go back to verse eight, he says, you know, then your, your light will, will break forth like the dawn. There will be healing that you'll experience. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of God will come behind you. Not only that, but, but I'll hear, verse nine, he says, I'll hear and I'll answer those prayers and, and I'll be with you. You'll experience my presence. And then at verse 11 or something like that, he says, and I will guide you. And not only will I guide you, but I will strengthen you and and I will sustain you. One blessing after another, if it's done beautifully, if then. And then he paints this glorious picture of what life can be like. Verse 11. He says, you will be like a well-watered garden, you know, fruitful, productive, abundant, like a spring whose waters never fail, just flourishing, bubbling over. And your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairers of broken walls and restorers of streets with dwellings. You're going to repair, you're going to rebuild, you're going to restore. Sounds a lot like the ministry of Jesus in the kingdom of God. And the result is refreshing our life and redeeming our world. That we get transformed and our world gets changed. And Jesus says, come, join me. This is what I've been a part of all the way through. So as we come to the the last week of our prayer and fasting, I I just want to encourage you, make it a thing of beauty, not a thing of duty. And let this not be the end, but just the beginning. Begin to pray. Spend time this week in Isaiah 58 and begin praying, God, how would you be using this time of prayer and fasting to prepare me for greater kingdom impact? I want this to be beautiful. Uh, close with this. In Acts, it says this. Paul writes these words. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We fast, we empty out, we fill up, and we pour forth to bring the kingdom of God, to bring justice, to bring shalom, all to God's glory.